Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Regina Celi, Eletare, Alleluia. We are Emmanuelisti Portare, Alleluia. Resoresi, Si Pudixi. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, here we go, guys. And we got to do our Bible study, right? So I hope you have your Bibles out. I hope you have a glass of wine out. Come on, a little toast, guys, to the resurrection. That's right. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. As we're living together and enjoying, I hope you guys have enjoyed this series together. It's a little different than our normal thing at the Institute, but you know what? Like I said at the beginning, we got to learn how to live together again. We got to learn how to feast again. And if we learn how to feast again and learn how to fast again, then our, 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 our spiritual life become in balance again. Okay. So we finished yesterday our study of Mary Magdalene. You're probably wondering, Father Hezekiah, you've only really gotten to like the first appearance, you know, and, and they run back to the upper room. They run back and forth. Remember our first slide. It's only about a 20 minute run, but they're running through the town back and forth, back and forth to see the tomb. It's empty. Come back and tell the apostles. The apostles run back. Then they go back to the upper room. Okay. So all this is going on. On the way back, remember now, Mary, he appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden. But remember who is left, who was in the garden and is now gone. Peter and John, okay? And we find out in Luke chapter 24, and we'll look at verse um, verse 33. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse, yes, okay, I thought I was looking at the wrong thing, but I'm not. This is the account. Now, hold on just a second. Before you start reading that, look back at me, with me, at chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, that's the resurrection day, right? That's that's Pascha, at early dawn. And look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, right? So there's in the afternoon or evening, they're going to the Emmaus. Then in verse 33, they come running back to Jerusalem. We're going to look a little closer at this, but we find out that there's been another appearance that doesn't actually, it's not being put in chronological order. We actually find out about it. After the road to Emmaus, and it's right here in verse 33, as they rode that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, those are the two guys, the, the Emmaus guys, right? Um, and they found the eleven gathered together, and those that were with them, who said, the Lord is risen, and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter, right? 
So you see what's going on. The 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 uh, Jesus appears to the women who are have left the tomb. He appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Um, and then he appears on the road to Emmaus, but apparently before he appears, or about the same time, Simon has now left the the tomb at some point during that day, probably on the way back, as he's appearing to Mary Magdalene, he also appears to Peter. Okay. Um uh Peter then returns to the upper room, and this is confirmed, by the way, in the oldest account of the resurrection, or uh, the account of the appearances of the resurrection, which comes to us not from the Gospels. It comes to us from the writings of St. Paul. In your Bible, the epistles of St. Paul are further along in your Bible. It doesn't mean they're later. St. Paul was writing before the Gospel writers wrote their account. So we can get the earliest account. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's go ahead and go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have a marker probably there in your Bible, if you left your markers there the other night. Chapter 15, uh, verse, we're going to come to verse 3. So 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. That's, remember we talked about that. That's Kepha. That's the Greek transliteration of the name Kepha, which means Peter, okay? Or which means rock, okay? And then we get the name Peter into English, okay? He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, which we're about to see. And then he appeared to more than 500 Brethren, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, okay, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, which is St. Paul, when he appeared to St. Paul in the Revelation, in which he has his conversion, right? So we have this order of appearances, which is, which is a good order. But it's not perfect, right? Because St. Paul intentionally, because he's writing to a, a community surrounded by pagans, I said this before, does not mention the women at all because in, in pagan cultures, women were not respected. And so the, 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 the um, acknowledgement or confession of a woman in that area in, in Corinth would have been rejected. And so he mentions only the men that were appeared to as being authoritative. But nevertheless, we get some important things here that he appeared to Peter confirming what is mentioned by the apostles in the upper room when the two disciples come in from Emmaus and they burst into the room about to confess that they have also seen Christ. And the apostles say, guys, he appeared to Peter. And then the guys from the road of Emmaus then do the same, okay? The road to Emmaus. Let's talk about that for a minute. Back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, okay? And... You know this story quite well. I'm not going to get into it uh, uh, much, except to make a couple comments about it, okay? That very evening, that's chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, okay? If you participate in our recent Bible study, you saw the map to Emmaus. This is the kind of thing, guys, I would stop my Bible study. We're not going to do it right now. But you're doing this study. you got to be willing to stop. Pull out your Bible maps and start, where's Emmaus? I want to know. 
Now I'm going to go on Google because we have amazing abilities now. Type in Emmaus and you want to find out, see pictures of what the, the surrounding area looks like, the countryside. So you can kind of get that sense of it. But look, it's the hill country of Judea. Very similar to Ein Karim or Bethlehem or Jerusalem itself. Rolling hills, hot, uh, uh, you know, heading, heading toward the sea and, uh, and so forth. Okay. But you can kind of build that, that picture for yourself. It says that in verse 14, and talking with each other about these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing uh, together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay. Now the, the tradition tells us these two men were Cleopas and uh, uh, um, Simon, okay, or Simeon. Now, Cleopas and Simeon are related. And I, I, I have to, I'm going to put this out there to you. Some of you are going to say, what's Father Hezekiah talking about? I'm going to come and talk about it a little bit more later, okay? And it's this. There is a, 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 a um, say, a tradition that developed very late, 1800s, even later, that St. Joseph, was a young, strapping, kind of virile man who made this heroic choice for the Virgin Mary to make to, to remain celibate and to respect her virginity. Okay, but this is a very late Romantic interpretation. In fact, the most ancient uh, interpretation and understanding is that Joseph was an old man and that he was a widower. And he actually had sons. And when the brothers of Jesus are mentioned, I know in a lot of times in apologetics today, you say, well, the name, the word for cousin and son is oftentimes is collided and the difference isn't there. But in fact, the, the, the most ancient explanation of Jesus's so-called brethren is that they, they were his brethren, half brothers, if you will, sons of Joseph, but not sons of Mary. Okay, and that Cleopas, one of these two men here, was actually Joseph's brother, and his the second person was his son Simeon. Simeon will become the second bishop of Jerusalem, behind James. Okay, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because guess who else is mentioned in First First Corinthians that Jesus appeared to. James. And you might say, why is Jesus appearing to James? Well, the simple answer is that James was the bishop of Jerusalem, the first bishop of Jerusalem. And Jesus's nephew, Simeon, becomes a second bishop of Jerusalem. Extremely important in understanding the early Christian concept of the messianic nature of Jesus and his continuance of the Davidic line that the bishop of Jerusalem would remain within the family. Okay? Now, I'm going to leave it at that and just say this, share this quotation from St. Augustine with you. Their eyes were obstructed. You remember, Jesus is talking with them about, and they don't recognize him. And then he goes and shows them from Moses to all the prophets, right, how he, who he is. And then his, their eyes are open to the breaking of the bread, right? On the road to Emmaus. I don't have to tell you guys this. You already know the story. Yes? Right? Am I right? They're on the road. He has this cosmic Bible study that everybody wishes they could have been involved in, where he shows them from the writings of Moses all the way through salvation history so that they can see who he is. And then he sits down. He breaks bread with them. 
and he vanishes at the moment of the breaking of the bread, revealing himself now in the Holy Eucharist. Augustine says this, their eyes were obstructed, and they should not recognize him until the breaking of the bread, and thus in accord, accordance with the state of their minds, which were still ignorant of the truth, that Christ would die and rise again. Their eyes were similarly hindered. It was not that the truth himself was misleading them, but rather that they were themselves unable to perceive the truth. Okay, We have this over and over and over again, whether it be Mary Magdalene, whether it be here, the, the, the women on the road to Emmaus, there's this kind of inability to perceive who this is standing in front of them. And in the Gospel of John, but also in the other Gospels, a lack of ability to see, to understand, is a lack of communion with the Lord. So their conversion process is still taking place. Huh? As our conversion process takes place throughout our life also. Though they had seen all of this, they still were kind of dim in their perception and unable to really see. And it's the same with us. We stumble in our faith and our ability to see. But over time, the closer we draw to the Lord, our eyes are opened. And what is the one thing they say? They say, our hearts, were our hearts not burning within us, right? In verse 32, you can look at that. Luke chapter 24, verse 32 as, as Jesus, he breaks bread, okay, and they begin this, this little discussion. It says, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, okay? Now, I'm just going to give you two um, uh, quick learning lessons from this, and that is that we should all always be teaching the faith from the scriptures. The catechism is helpful. Books are helpful. Okay, the writings of the saints are helpful, but ultimately there's nothing that can replace the teaching from the scriptures. When I when I love to teach, when I when I'm teaching a, 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 on a um, catechetical subject, okay, I don't go quote the fathers of the church and the catechism and the pope. No, we begin with scripture, and now we explain the scriptures properly to the student. Every student, every uh, child should have a Bible in their hand, because unless if we don't teach from the scriptures, not following what Jesus did. He didn't pull out the writings of the rabbis and the this and that. No, he explained from the scriptures who he was. So that's the first lesson I want to show you. The second lesson is that if we don't know the Old Testament, look what it says. It says he, he, he shared with them from, uh, from Moses okay, and all the prophets. Luke chapter 24, from Moses, there it is, verse 27. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in the, all of Scripture the things concerning himself. You see, you know, I think people fall away from Christ or they struggle to really have faith in him. Why? Not because we failed to give the right apologetic argument, but because we're biblically illiterate. Biblical literacy is the key. If you're on the road to Emmaus, seriously. If you are on the road to Emmaus and Jesus starts pulling out all the goodies, okay, he's sharing with you from the prophet Jonah and he's preaching to you from, from Ezekiel and Daniel and he's talking about the, the son of man riding. Don't you remember in the book of Daniel, the son of man riding on the clouds of heaven? And you're going to say to him, what? What? The prophet who? Riding on the what? Do you see the prophet? If, if most Catholics were on the road to Emmaus, 
their hearts wouldn't have been burning within them. It's only because these guys knew the Old Testament in and out that Jesus is able to kind of like do the orchestra thing, right? He's like pulling from this prophet and he's pulling from Joel and he's pulling from this guy and over here. And he's going, see? And they're going, yeah, I see now. That means that we got to prepare ourselves for an encounter with the Lord. You got to be a people of the Bible, a people of the word, okay? Now, this goes back to what I was saying yesterday, and I promised I would share with you. That we better know the Old Testament if we hope to recognize Christ. So many leave the church because they see in it some invented thing rather than God's original plan. So I got you this juicy quote from St. Porphyrios. Now you're like, who's St. Porphyrios? Well, now you're going to go look him up because the guy's awesome. Listen to what he says. Here, the depth, of, okay, the church is without beginning, without end, and eternal. Just as the triune God, her founder, is without beginning, without end, and eternal. She's uncreated, just as God is uncreated. She existed before the ages, before the angels, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, as St. Paul says. She, and in her dwells the whole fullness of divinity. She is an expression of the richly varied wisdom of God. She is the wit- mystery of mysteries. She has was concealed and was revealed in the last times. The church remains unshakable because she's rooted in the love and wise providence of God. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. And in their image and likeness, we are made. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's soul winning. I can just read that over and over again. It's so beautiful. All right. Now, St. Augustine says, All that we read in Holy Scripture for our instruction salvation demands our attentive ear. You have just heard how the eyes of those two disciples whom the, who the Lord joined on their way were kept from recognizing him. He, fa- he, founded them in dis- he found them in despair of, of the redemption that was in Christ, supposing him now to have suffered and died as a man not imagining him to live forever as the son of God. So he opened to them the scriptures and showed them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, for all these things to be fulfilled, and were written concerning him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In short, the whole of the Old Testament. Everything in those scriptures speaks of Christ, but only to him who has ears. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so let us pray that he will open our minds also. Okay. In Luke chapter 24, verse 36, he appears again. Now, the, the men have returned from Emmaus. Peter is there. They've just had this back and forth. And it says in verse 36, and they were saying with this, and they were, as they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and supposed that he was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why does questioning rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself handle me, see me, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and wonder, he said to them, Have you here anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to him, Thus it is written that the church should, that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached 
in the name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now, my brothers and sisters, John in his gospel, you can flip there. John in his gospel in chapter uh, chapter 20 adds only that he also breathed upon them. And he picks this up and repeats it now um, when Thomas uh, appears. But he says to him in chapter 20, verse 19, chapter 20, verse 19 of John. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that he saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain sins of any, they are retained. Okay. First of all, St. Jerome says that Jesus ate with them to prove to them that he was in the flesh. When the Jehovah's Witness come knocking on your door, don't you dare let them tell the story of the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that Michael the archangel appeared and that it wasn't actually the body of Jesus because they believe that you can't, that, that once you die, that's it, you cease to exist. And therefore... Jesus somehow, God kind of tricked everybody by showing them a fake body that looked like it was Jesus and said, here to Thomas, put your finger. But it's all, it's all a lie, they believe. It's a joke. It's a, it's a farce. So you have to know that. They're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Never get kind of enticed by their, by their nonsense. Jerome says, it was in the eating that he proved to me a real teeth. Okay? All right. And then this point about breathing. I know it's used a lot of times in apologetics, but I want to just share with you guys. I'm going to come away from apologetics for a minute get back to the Garden of Eden, okay? It was God who breathed first into the, into the, the breath of life into Adam and Eve, yes? In Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, okay? He breathed into them the breath of life. You have to understand that the gift of God's life fills a person with God's life, and therefore sin is gone. It's not some sort of magic formula, when God gives his life to another, sin is gone. Sin is the lack of God's life in my life. You see? So sometimes I hear people use this text to beat Protestants over there. You see, the priest has the power to forgive sin. They can get blown on him and bam. And we're hitting each other over the head with the Bible. You then look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He made Peter the head of the church. My brothers and sisters, what about reality? God breathed into them, and sin is gone. And with that gift of the life of God, then each one of us is given a gift to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. One is a hand, and one is a foot. One is an eye, and one is an ear. Because God loves us, he shares his life with us. Lanny, you and Sam loved each other, and you shared your life together. That's what love is. God shares his life with us, and when he does that, the things of his become ours. We should expect that, that, that among men is found these gifts of the forgiveness of sins because it's a gift proper to God. Do you see that? And it's not found in each one of us equally because we're not all rubber stamp things. One is a hand, one is a foot, one is an eye. When I am hearing confessions, I lend my ear to the work of Jesus Christ just as much as you lend your hand to the work of Jesus Christ when you feed the poor or do the other aspects of the mission of the church. Do you see that? We're going to need to switch gears, and we're going to head up to Galilee. In John chapter 20, verse 26, verse 26, it says that eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut. You know the story, right? He comes, he says, look, Thomas, stick your hand over here. You know, stick it over here. It's me. 
in the flesh. Okay. All right. Now, there's, I, I don't think I need to say much about the eight days. I've, I've mentioned it before. Huh? Jesus, Jesus took our human nature. He went to the cross on the sixth day of the week, the day that Adam was created, putting the old Adam to death. He rested in the tomb on the seventh day. And the first day of the week, he came forth from the tomb, that first Sunday morning. But the Father's saying it wasn't just any first day of the week. But on that day, he entered our human nature into the eternal day of the Lord. And therefore, they call it the eighth day, the day that knows no end. And therefore, Christians have always worshipped on the eighth day, on Sunday, every Sunday. And here it is that Jesus appears the first Sunday, and then the next Sunday, apparently he's just appearing on the Sundays, which is so beautiful for a Sunday worship. But there is another reason, and I'm about to completely blow your minds with this one. Because we talked, we talked about, um, we talked in our first thing and in our, in our, in our last one about the sheaf offering, right? This, the feast of weeks, yes? And the waving of the first fruits, the offering, yeah? You guys remember that? On the first day of the resurrection. This is what Pixner says. Listen to this. Accord, and this is a little bit of a long quote, but you guys stick with me. According to the sequence of feasts, as the Pharisees and the temple priests understood them from the precepts of the Torah, on this first immediate day of Passover, the first sheaves of the grain harvest were brought to the temple, waved there before the altar, and presented as an offering to the first crop of the year. This is how the ordinance of the Pentateuch was understood from Leviticus chapter 23. If you want to write that down, it's Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 and 16. Don't turn there right now. Leviticus 23, verse 15 and 16. The sheep offering is called the Omer in Hebrew, and the entire period of the counting is called the counting of the Omer. Okay, the 50 days, the counting of the Omer, okay? The feast at the end of this period is called the Feast of Weeks because it concludes seven weeks of counting. The words of the Torah count from the day from after the Sabbath were interpreted in different ways. The Sadducees began counting the 50 days on the Sunday following the Sabbath within Passover week. The Pharisees considered the first day of Passover on which the Seder is celebrated in Hebrew. Feast days are also called Sabbaths to be, to be that Sabbath and began counting from the first immediate day as is done by the Jews this, today. Since in that year, Passover fell on a Sabbath, there was no dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And both groups could perform the feast of the sheep offering on the same day without dispute on the day of the resurrection. But for the Essenes who lived in Mount Sion, which I showed you on the first day of our class together, where the upper room was located, for the Essenes, the Sabbath following the seven days of Passover was the day that was meant in the Torah. They began to count the Omer on Sunday, five days after their Passover week was over. Consequently, the Essenes celebrated their Feast of Weeks one week later than the Pharisees and Sadducees, since the Essenes did not take any part in the temple service. They probably performed a ceremony similar to an Omer offering within their own community in the neighborhood of Jesus' supper room, where the Essenes counting was prominent, they assembled after the Passover week for the Feast of the Sheep offering. Oh, do you see this? Jesus appears for the Pharisees and Sadducees on the day of the resurrection as the first offering, but eight days later, he specifically goes to the Essene community and appears again as the offering of the first fruits. Surrounding, I want you to imagine, Surrounding the upper room where the apostles are hidden, 
all of the Estines are in full feast, making the sheaf offering. And suddenly Jesus appears in their midst. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Now, in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Let's look there. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, some worshiped him, but some doubted. The other account we have of Jesus in Galilee is from the Gospel of John. But in the Gospel of John, he appears to them not on a mountain, but by the sea. So Jesus goes to the north, to Galilee. The apostles go there. But in John, he appears on the sea. But in Matthew, it says, go to the mountain to where I'm directing you to go. Now, the problem here is answered in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Remember, it says that he appeared first to Peter and then to the apostles. But then it says he appeared to 500. As I said, 1 Corinthians is the oldest of the accounts. And the tradition of where he appeared to 500 people mentioned in St. Paul is none other than the Mount of Beatitudes in the Sea of Galilee. Melanie, we're going to pick up our, um, our, our slideshow real fast to show people where we're at. Okay, take a look at this, Melanie. Help us go from uh, Jerusalem down south, down sure. south by the Dead Sea with your mouse. Yeah, all the way down. There you go, Jerusalem. They're going to head up the Jordan River all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. That's right. And then we're going to look at Capernaum. See Capernaum? Okay. Where Jesus, where, Capernaum is where Jesus loved to live. Okay. It's his town. It's Peter's town. So he, this is where he's going to appear. Now, Melanie, go ahead and, and flip the slide. Melanie, show them uh, Capernaum again. Right down there near Heptagon in the Sea of Galilee. Now, okay. Now we're going to flip this slide now again. And here it is. Okay. Here's the coastline. You see Capernaum and you see Tabga. And you see the Mount of Beatitudes. This is the Jesus Triangle. Okay, see Capernaum, Melanie, right there. Draw a triangle from Capernaum to Mount of Beatitudes. You guys got it, right? It's the triangle, the Holy Triangle. Jesus lived in this area. What you have to know is that when Jesus gathered people together, it was right here. All the big crowds gathered right here. Okay, and you can see how fertile the land is overlooking the sea. Go ahead and flip it again. All right, this is the view of the sea looking at the place. See that little gray church down below? See the little gray church down to the right of that? That's the place where Jesus appeared, and the apostles were out in the water like where we are, but maybe a little closer. And you see up on the hill the church of the Mount of Beatitudes, and you see down below the, the church of the Mount of Beatitudes this green field. Do you see that it looks like an amphitheater? Okay, now, Melanie, flip, remember this about the amphitheater. Flip the slide. Here, right at the base of that amphitheater is a cave where Jesus loved to go and pray. None of the, the pilgrims that go there, the, the tourists never see this, okay? But this is there. I take all my pilgrims there. And it's a little spot, just perfect, about 12 people to sit down, 13 people to sit down together and to pray. And it has a view overlooking the sea, okay? And just above it is that amphitheater. All right, go ahead, Melanie. Switch the slide. Okay, there it is. Exactly. Some of us have been there together. Okay, switch the slide again. All right, there it is, overlooking the whole thing. Now go ahead and bring this down, Melanie, and and we gotta we gotta keep going. 
All right. Um, the appearance to uh, the apostles on the sea takes place, I said, in the Gospel of John. So let's flip there real quick. Okay, John chapter 21, or chapter, uh, chapter 20, chapter 21. No, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse, well, we're going to look at it at the beginning here. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias was the emperor, renamed it after himself. So it's called Gennesaret, it's called Tiberias, it's called Galilee, okay? And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going out fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the, into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? Okay, you know this story well. Now, he appears to them, and you know, remember what he says. Throw your net to the other side. They bring in such a load of fish um, that, that, that can be carried. When we pick up in verse 15. Verse 15, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. When they had finished break breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Send them feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The key to this text is the context. I'm going to come back to chapter 21, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard. And he hauled the net to shore that the entire rest of the apostolic college could not bring by themselves. Okay. He grabs the whole thing and hauls it in by himself. Having just come out of the water, the fathers of the church say in that moment, Peter was baptized through the waters, becoming like a fish in the water. Jesus caught him and brought him to shore. And the first thing that Peter saw when he came out of the water was the charcoal fire. Now tell me when is the last time, when's the last time that Peter saw charcoal fire? When he denied Jesus three times. So now he looks at the charcoal fire and Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? But when he asks him this question, in the Greek text of John that we receive, Jesus does not say the same thing three times, which is why Peter is grieved on the third time. The first two times Jesus asks him, do you love me? The Greek word in the gospel of John is agapao, which is a sacrificial love. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself, Peter? And Peter says to him that I, that I love you. A second time the same. And the third time Jesus lowers the level to a lower level of friendship. Because Peter was not able to do the very thing he wanted to do. Do you remember the night of the passion? Peter says, we will go with you. 
We will never deny you. I will go with you according to his own strength. But he failed according to his own strength. And he knows now that he is not able to follow Jesus as he had first intended. And this is why at the end of this conversation, in verse 18, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, before, you girded yourself and walked where you would. And look where it got you. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you would not wish to go. The most ancient tradition of Peter's martyrdom is that when a persecution broke out in Rome, he was convinced to leave the city. And on walking out of the city, beyond the walls of the city, Jesus appeared to him and said to him, Peter, where are you going? And taking him by the hand, he turned him around and led him back to his own crucifixion, taking him to that place where he would not otherwise go. It was there on that mountain that the tradition tells us he appeared to 500. Now, let me ask you a question. How did this happen? How is it that 500 people gathered in one spot to see Jesus? There's only 500 appearances, one appearance to 500 people. How is it possible that 500 people would gather in one spot? If someone told you Jesus is going to appear in a certain place, what's the question you're going to ask? Where? Well, if they told you where, what's the next question you're going to ask? When? When, exactly. And this is most likely what happened. As the apostles left Jerusalem and are traveling up, visiting all of the communities that had seen Jesus and been following him, they told him, he's going to appear on the mountain. And probably there was an agreement on when this was going to happen. Okay, Pinkster says maybe it was the midpoint of the feast, which Christians still keep, the midpoint of Pascha, the midpoint up to Pentecost. But on a particular day, 500 people gathered together and they saw the Lord there in the same place he had taught them in those years earlier, that beautiful amphitheater. Okay, the, 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 the Mount of Beatitudes Church is up on the top, but the traditional site for the old, there's an ancient Byzantine uh, uh, foundation of where the original church was up there. And it's down lower because the place where Jesus taught from was not up on the mountain speaking down to the people, but he would have stood on the Sea of Galilee side of the amphitheater and allowed the wind to carry the sound up the hill. Okay, Melanie, weren't you and I down there and we could hear the farmer up on the hill talking? Remember that when we were down below? I think that was someone else. It may have been somebody else, but you can, it's a, it's a, the, the wind comes off the sea and you can hear all of the sounds. This natural amphitheater. Okay. And then the tradition tells us that Jesus returned to uh, Jerusalem. In fact, that's picked up in Luke chapter 24. So let's turn there to Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Now stop for a second. Where is Bethany? Remember, Bethany is the home of Lazarus, and it's right up on the top of the Mount of Olives. Just, it's right there. So he led them out of Jerusalem up to Bethany. They were, of course, staying in the upper room. And it's there that he meets James for the last time, who is his brother in the Lord, the son of Joseph. James is going to become the bishop of Jerusalem after the ascension. Um, you can see that again, just as a reminder. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
okay, in verse um, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. Okay, there it is. So these are, this is the final appearance of the Lord, okay? Um, I'm going to share with you, again, from Virgil Pixner, page 169. Hold on one second here, because I don't have it marked. In his report, Paul distinguishes between the twelve and the apostles. All those who were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus are called apostles. James, Jesus' brother, was one of them. Like Peter, he was privileged by a personal appearance of the Lord. We learn details about this only from a quotation taken from a Jewish Christian gospel, the complete text of which has been lost to us. The quote, which was preserved for us by the church father Jerome, gives us a valuable information. He says this, Jerome writes, The gospel that is called according to the Hebrews, which is now lost to us, we don't have it, and which I recently translated into Greek and Latin, reports the resurrection of the Lord. When the Lord handed over the linen cloth to the priest's servant, he went to James and appeared to him. For James had made an oath to eat no bread after he had drunk the cup of the Lord until he saw him in the resurrection of those who had fallen asleep. Shortly thereafter, the Lord said to him, bring a table here with bread. Right after that, it adds, he took the bread, smote the blessing and gave it to James, the just, and said to him, my brother, Eat your bread. The Son of Man is risen from those who are asleep. Okay? And then Jesus takes them up Bethany. I'm going to conclude here now, Melanie, with a couple of slides and a quotation um, uh, from one of the early Christian writings. Okay? okay? We're going to go to the next slide. I might have a couple I didn't go. Yeah, there's it on the Sea of Galilee. You still see fishermen out there. I think I took that picture. There it is. Okay, now here's Jerusalem, guys. See the Temple Mount where the where the, the Muslim uh, thing is over there with the Golden Dome? And then the Kidron Valley beyond it? And then the Mount of Olives rises up with all those tombs, people waiting for the coming of the Messiah, wanting to be buried on the Mount of Olives because that's where the Messiah was going to come from. Okay, And you'll notice just at the top of that hill to the left is a tower. You see that tower? That's right up there in the area of Bethany. That's the Russian Orthodox Church of the Ascension. And right in that area is believed that Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay. Now, I'll leave you. I'm going to leave you uh, with a quotation and a final and a final biblical text. Well, let me do the biblical text and I'm going to leave you with the quotation from Ephesians chapter 4. Let's turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verse, um, uh, verse starting with verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as we are called to the one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is what I was talking about earlier, okay, about confession. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. My brothers and sisters, Jesus ascended into heaven. And at the very moment he ascended into heaven, the gospel of Matthew, he says his final words to his apostles. I will never leave you. And he says this because he does not leave us. He gives himself to us in a new way. In the ascension, the church fathers tell us that he enthroned our human nature at the right hand of God to do with it what we were meant to do 
namely to give ourselves to one another as he has given himself to us. And in this text of Ephesians chapter 4, he continues to talk about those gifts that everyone is given, whether it's a teacher, a cook, a, a servant who in the church. Every member of the body of Christ is given a gift. And this is the fullness of that resurrection of the Lord. This is the reason why Jesus rose from the dead, not for himself, but that we might also receive a newness of life, a newness of life that is found in its fullness in living for one another as he has given his life for us. And I encourage you in this time, as we conclude this, this study together, I encourage you to renew that commitment to be an evangelist for Christ, to be one who gives Christ to others because our entire life has been given by him. Okay, I'll leave you with this quotation and then we're going to sing together and conclude our time. Okay, this is an unknown uh, uh, author from the early from the fifth century. He says, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us keep it with gladness and rejoicing. Why should we do so? Because the sun is no longer darkened. Instead, everything is bathed in light. This is the day, the truest sense, the day of triumph. Let us keep it with gladness and rejoicing. This is the day on which Adam was set free and Eve delivered from her affliction. It is the day on which cruel death shuddered. It is a day on which the bodies of people long dead were restored to their former life and the laws of the underworld, hitherto ever powerful and immutable, were repealed. It is a day on which the heavens were opened at the rising of the Christ of the Lord, on which, for the good of, human, of the human race, the flourishing and fruitful tree of the resurrection sent forth branches, all over the world as if the world were a garden. My brothers and sisters, the world has become a garden again in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it only awaits us to go and till and keep it and make it grow and make it beautiful once again. Thank you so much for participating in this series. I'm going to invite my family to come out and we're going to sing together tonight, guys. I hope you had a chance to print off the handoff. If you didn't, that's okay because you can sing with us because you only need to know uh, one word tonight that you're going to repeat over and over again. And the rest of my kids, come on out here, guys, are going to come here. And my son, Vincenzo, is going to help us out. Vincenzo, say hello. Hi. Yeah. And um, we're all going to kind of do this together. You guys have to be on mute, unfortunately, because uh, the way this system works, the response is just amen. And this is, what's the, what's the movie? Where is it from the movie? Lilies of the Valley. Lilies of the Field. Lilies of the Field. Okay, yep. and, and Vincenzo's going to do his best. We'll help him out along the way if needed. But we're going to just sing together as a big ICC family res living the resurrection, okay? Let's go, okay.
saving all sinners. Amen. 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 See you at the seaside. Amen. Talking with the fishermen. Amen. And making them disciples. Amen. 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 Marching in Jerusalem. Amen. Over palm branches. Amen. In pomp and splendor. Amen. 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 Seen in the garden. Amen. Praying to his father. Amen. In deep and sorrow. Amen. 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 Then before Pilate. Amen. Then they crucified him. Amen. But he rose on Easter. Amen. 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 And the new year. Amen. He died to save us. Amen. And he lives forever. Amen. 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 All right, is there any Q&A? I know we've gone long every night, but I love living together, and I love just sharing together. So if there's any questions, those online, by the way, or those on panelists can also raise their hand. They want to say something, share a comment, whatever you want to do, ask a question. Marshall Pixner's got a couple of books. Pixner, P-I-X-N-E-R. Okay, Bargill. Yeah, that Tom's got it. Uh, B Bargill's B-A-R-G-I-L. This is with Jesus in Jerusalem. He's also Jesus in Galilee. Both are excellent books. One of them is out of print, and it costs like $400 to get it, so don't buy that. Okay? But the one that's not out of print, you can pick up for fairly inexpensive. Um, and then uh, he also has another one that's a little bit more academic. It called, it's called Paths of the Messiah, I think. And But it's excellent, too, if you really want to get serious about this stuff. And it's like doing a Bible study on a whole other level. It's fantastic. Um, Porphyrios. We'll send you the link. We'll send you a, a, the quote in our after study email uh, because I'm still not finding it. Um, Ann Cocker is wondering, is there a significance of the apostles catching 152 or 153 fish? There's oh. been different comments about that. St. Jerome says it represents all of the nations of the world, I think it says. And, and then, look, I don't know about all that stuff, but it's a lot of fish. You know what I mean? Have you ever picked up a good-sized fish, you know, or even a small one? About 150 times a lot. I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to make a big deal out of the number, although some of the fathers of the church do offer an interpretation. And, uh, Annette, I'm happy to share with you uh, a whole list of quotations on that point, if you want, from the church fathers. But I'd say the more important point is that the net was breaking, right? And the apostles couldn't pull it in. But Peter's encounter with Jesus is so powerful. And it's like classic Peter, too, because he's very, he's very like, you know, 
I'll go anywhere with you. I'll die. I'll do everything. And then he's like, oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And he's like, I love you. You know, so he goes, runs on the boat and holds the whole net under the shore by himself. Okay. So the encounter is, uh, is, 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 is quite amazing. You guys, when I was teaching that section, I actually messed it up. I apologize. Because the word in Greek is, is oh, not exactly the way I said it. Jesus uses the word in Greek, in, in, in John, for sacrificial love. But Peter responds with phileo, meaning a brotherly love. It's, it's like a friendship love, but it's nothing more. So the second time Jesus asks him again, do you have this sacrificial love for me, Peter? And Peter again responds below him. And then Jesus lowers and comes down to Peter's thing and says, Peter, do you at least have this friendship love for me? And Peter repeats and says, yeah, at least I got that, you know? And it's at that, it's at that moment that I, that I think... You know, scholars and stuff, different interpretations, but I think it's like Peter's great, a moment of, he finally stands before the Lord and realizes he can't do it on his own. And it's only the grace of God that's going to strengthen him. And at that moment, he has this total conversion in which he he just puts his hand, himself in the hands of the Lord, and he admits his weakness. And it's at that point that the Lord comes to every one of us and then, and then strengthens us for the walk that he's prepared us for, not the one we prepared ourselves for. Okay? Question, Father. Yes. Um, I am continually amazed that after the resurrection of Christ, so many of his disciples mistook him for a gardener, did not recognize him. Yeah. In some, even though they supposedly we're totally familiar with the sayings, with, with the words of the prophets. They just didn't yeah. get it. Well, and I just I, find that I find that just puzzling. Yeah, there's two times in particular, though. There's two times in particular that this. I, so I, I said earlier, I mentioned. I think tonight, maybe it was yesterday, but I think I mentioned it tonight also that saying that this lack of understanding in the Gospels is always this kind of this not quite full acceptance yet, right? Because in the Gospel of John, it says the light shine in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it, cannot understand it, cannot bring it in, right? So there's this a bit of a separation and division. But I also think that um, there's this, there's there's two times in which you're, this happens like in a big way, and that's on the road to Emmaus and with Mary Magdalene, okay? In both those moments, Jesus appears to them in a form, in, in a form that reveals something more than his human just here's the guy I was walking with for three years, right? He appears as the one tilling and keeping the garden, as man fully restored to, to Mary Magdalene, right? He appears in the breaking of the bread. And I think in both, there's something there in both of those things. He's drawing us to see, and this is, I made a big boo-boo, by the way, in one of my talks on the Ascension that I was giving. And I, and I, it was, the, the, it, well, anyways, I, the, the, the quotation in the gospel was from Matthew at, at Mass for the Feast of the Ascension. And I think the, there was something really important and beautiful about that, that in, in the gospel of Matthew, turn there with me real quick. I mentioned this earlier, but I, I really think it, it re, bears repeating. There at the end of the gospel of Matthew, um, um, and Jesus came and said in verse six, verse 18, so chapter 20, verse 18. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And then he ascends into heaven. Okay? He ascends into heaven. And I, I, I think this is a critically important point. It comes back to you, Bob, what you're asking. Is that the glory of God, because of who he is, as love, and this goes back to Lanny. I was talking about, about your relationship with Sam. You know, this beautiful relationship with marriage. The, the beauty of the love of marriage is always found in the other that I've given my life to. And the glory of God is found. St. Irenaeus says this. The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. Because man fully alive is the, is the revelation of God's love. You see, he's given his life to us. And this is, you see, and, and the life of the, of, of the Trinity, of, of living this life of communion, of love from all eternity. So in the, in the I, I think there's something here in the resurrection accounts in which Jesus gives himself to us in the Eucharist. And, and now this full, and then, and then he's gone from their sight as far as they formerly had been, right? And he reveals himself in bread divinized, transformed in the created order of things, now totally transformed and divinized by, by his love. He shows himself to Mary Magdalene as, as Adam, completely restored to what he's supposed to do. And so they're, they're looking for the, the Jesus that they saw walking around. But the Jesus they saw walking around has now given the full breadth and depth of his love. And now reveals himself to them now in the full revelation of that love, the incarnation of that love. This is why the Eucharistic uh, uh, mysteries they're so beautiful. This is the revelation of the resurrection. It's the revelation of God's love. That, a, that bread and wine could possibly be transformed into the life of God. This is his original plan in the beginning, that all of the created order would be divinized through the work of Adam and Eve, tilling and keeping and blessing the garden, transforming the whole world into paradise. And this is why in the church this begins in water, with oil, with wine, with bread. All of the things of this world are now transformed as a beginning. The altar is the beginning that now should flow out into the whole world through our work, through our hands, through the tilling keeping. I remain with you always in you because he loves us too much to save us without us. And he becomes vulnerable to you, Michelle, and John, and Bob, and Gretchen, and Robert, and Consuelo, and, and Judy, he, and Father Hezekiah, and Lanny. He becomes, he, he becomes, he becomes um, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, vulnerable to our yes, like he was to, the, to, to Mary. And the work of salvation now is carried out in the revelation of his love for us, which was his original plan in the very beginning. Okay. Are there any other questions? We're going way. That was way long. I'm sorry. Can you take one more from a Henry Du Bois? He's wondering because First Corinthians fifteen five says that Jesus um, appeared to the twelve, and Henry's saying, shouldn't it just be eleven since Judas had not yet been replaced? Ah, that's um, that's that's a good, that's a good question. I didn't think about that, Henry. I saw Henry kind of throw you a curveball. Um, let me think about that. Yeah. Thanks, Henry, for embarrassing me once again during Q&A, you know. Yeah. Are there no other questions to Bob. cover for me while I look something up real fast? Hold on. 
Yeah, so that's not going to work. Yeah. So I was looking something up really fast. That's a good question, Henry. I'm going to look that up. You know what Maybe we're going to do at the Institute? Hold on. We're going to let Henry challenge all of us and leave us with this in question. There's so many questions about the resurrection, guys. And I hope there's – look, you're not going to remember anything I said. Am I right? You're going to wake up tomorrow, and you're going to be completely <laughs> lobotomized, and you're not going to remember anything I said. But if you remember one thing, and that is got to do your work. You can't open the Bible and play Bible roulette because you're going to die most horribly and you're going to open up and you're going to read, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. Oh, yeah. I'll get some spiritual juice out of that one. Yeah, that's Bible roulette. Don't ever do that. you got to make a plan. you got to study. And so, so, Henry, thank you very much for challenging all of us, including Father Hezekiah's. And everybody's got a little project to do. Go ahead and do some research. Melanie, are we done? Let's finish. Let's finish in prayer. I got some of my kids standing around calling saying Christ is risen together. Okay. And I think we can share that, that screen. Um, you know what? We've been seeing enough, Melanie. We don't need to share the screen because everybody knows it. And if you don't know it, you got to print it off. If you don't have to print it off, you're going to come on. Come join us. Come on. Okay. That way we can all see each other's beautiful faces. That's what I want to be able to see. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Christ is risen from the dead, trembling at death by death, and on those Resurrection. We glorify the resurrection on the third day. God bless all of you guys. A blessed Pascha. And keep celebrating together. We love you. Please pray for all of the members of our institute that we remain safe and healthy and uh and and, and alive in Jesus Christ. All right. God bless you. Enjoy the evening together. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.